on the banks of the Great River, high above the Alora Gorge. This is the Buzzard Podcast. Indie music, new releases, industry insiders, out-of-the-box conversations with guests from the true north, from the west coast to the east coast, to across the pond, and from down under. And now, here is Shay. Hey, y'all. I am Shay. This is the Buzzer Podcast. Independent music releases global coverage. Welcome and enjoy. It's episode 71 and first music trivia. August 16th, 1977, we lost the king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley. Rest in peace, Elvis. We feature Stringbone today. Southern Ontario songwriter Barry James Payne is the architect of Stringbone. Stringbone brings Payne's true-life narratives close to the ear with tender arrangements supporting his gruff sincerity, well-worn by the rumble of the road. The career of Payne in music has spanned from performing to working the back end in production and marketing. He is the founder of the First Canadian Songwriters Association. The artist is a gift to Canada, an incredible talent, Americana to the bone, and Canadiana in the heart and soul. Enjoy the show. Hi, uh, Barry. Thank you for coming on the show today. I'm really excited to have you and feature your music on the show. Hi, Shay. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it was really great. I was uh, very excited. You're part. You're in Ontario, and until I happened upon the release, waiting for my dying day, um, I hadn't heard of you, and I should have because you're very active in the music scene in Canada. Yeah, I've been at this for quite a long time, um, and yeah, I just you know I just go at it day in day out, and uh, I've played uh, a little bit. I don't play much in Toronto, um, and I don't I don't know why. I just you know it's just not one of those areas that I play in a lot. So you know, that's actually very common uh, where there's a local artist. Um, in any town, whether it's Ottawa or, or any city, Ottawa, Hamilton, London, Stratford, and um, they gig mostly locally versus the big GTA. It's a different. It's a different music scene. Yeah, I mean, uh, for me, it's uh, I've I've played all over southwestern Ontario. I've played up north. I've played Ottawa. I've played Kingston, Cornwall. I mean, I've played in a lot of different, you know, smaller venues, I guess, or cities and. And um, Toronto, I find just a really, it's hard to tap into. Um, and it's, it's kind of expensive to, to go there with, uh, like, it's a lot of it's just, um, uh, in a way, it's pay to play. So I don't want to play that game. You know what I mean? What do you mean by pay to play specifically? Uh, well, it's, a lot of times you don't. There's no guarantees at a lot of the the clubs there, so it's based on ticket sales or whatever. And, and oh yeah, hundred percent. Losing okay. more money than you're making, so it's like, why would I bang my head against that wall? You know. Yeah, so I, I don't have uh, that problem in Hamilton. I don't have that problem in London, Ontario. I don't have that problem in Windsor or Sarnia. You know, it's just, it's a different, it's a different. Uh, landscape Toronto is. If I was living in Toronto, it'd be a completely different situation. But it costs me, you know, hundred bucks every time I go there, you know. So Yeah, I get that. I get that. I, I actually know quite a few acts that and I won't name the venues, um <laughs> for legal and other reasons. Um and they've come out uh, with they come out at a fully packed show, full night, traveling Toronto, paying the cost of moving the band and the equipment was set up uh, overnight uh, with maybe $50 in the pocket. Yeah, it's a tough business that way. So, you know, I think you just have to go to where you you can earn a living. And and I've focused mostly on, on tertiary markets. I play in another band called Rant Maggie Rant, and that's been our, our whole agenda is, is let's go to – you know, perform in smaller cities where they may not get this kind of entertainment very often. And so we've actually, with Rant Maggie Rant, we've, we've 
you know, we've developed a following. Um, like in Sarnia, we can play the Imperial Theater and draw 600 people. But we, yeah. and we've played Toronto. We, we usually play Toronto. Uh, we used to play Hughes Room. I think we did that nine, nine St. Paddy's Day celebrations in a row uh, at the Hughes Room. And we usually sold that place out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we tended not to play anywhere else in Toronto. So it was very specific to Hughes Room. Um, and then a lot of other smaller cities that, that we would go back to and we would have actually develop a following over two, three years. Uh, but even in the first year, it was, you know, we'd be coming out with a good guarantee. And that's what we needed in order to keep a, a large band running. And um, and we just set our goals high and, and went after it. With Stringbone, it's a little bit different. I'm I'm ready, willing, and able to play a house concert. You know, it's like... Mm-hmm. But I don't want to go out and lose money, and that's the that's the biggest issue. So I don't tend to play in Toronto because there are very little guaranteed shows when you're you're talking about you know pubs or clubs or you know certain venues. Um, and I just I don't know I've just stayed away from it. It just didn't make sense to me. Well, I was going to bring up Brett. Maggie Ramp later in the show, but since you brought it up already, we're going to talk yeah. about it. Uh, <laughs> do you feel the the draw is because of the uh, your mix of genres, uh, folk roots and Celtic of the band? The Celtic roots of the band uh, bring a lot of Celtic fans out for sure. Yeah, it would. Uh, but I would say Rant is not a traditional Celtic band. Um, what we do is we take traditional melodies and then we just hammer it over the head with all kinds of other things. And, and uh, you know, I come from a, uh, a, a folk and a folk rock and a rock and, and uh, you know, almost a punk uh, approach. Um, you know, I wouldn't say that I'm a, I was or, or I never really played in a punk band. There was, I, I was in a rock band that verged on punk, but, Mm-hmm. Um, when I think of punk, I think of the Sex Pistols. I think of you know Bad Religion. I think of you know some of the the, the more up tempo, faster machine gun guitar type stuff. Mm-hmm. And about Celtic, the Celtic guitar that I play is very machine gun. It's 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 um, so fast, and I have to be in physical uh, good shape. Otherwise, I'm I'm walking out of a show, and I'm my arm is just trashed. So it's. Um, you know, it's it's that energy. Uh, we play a lot of our songs fairly fast, uh, mm-hmm. typical to a, 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 a typical Irish tr- uh, tr- uh, trad melody. So you know, we will up will up the tempo, but um, our percussionist is uh, you know he's studied in um, Latin and African hand drumming and that type of thing. So that brings a whole different element. And then you know, my guitar playing is tends to be fairly simple compared to you know your high level celtic guitarist who is all over the neck i i play fairly basic sort of bar chord type things mm-hmm. and it it just adds this very very uh, it's just very punchy i guess it's it's my approach is very very different than your typical um celtic guitarist and uh i just add a lot of, a lot of fat to that sort of sound um so yeah, and then we were just we we just add some more roots flavors, I guess you could say. Lindsay, mm-hmm. our fiddle player, is more the the glue that holds the Irish and Scottish melodies together, and um, and she's a fierce fiddle player too. Well, it's incredible music, incredible music. Went down the rabbit hole before oh, yeah. I came yeah. on. Yeah, I love it, love it. So what? How did you end up in music all time? Yeah, I just had another interview last week, and you know, it's um, I just remember growing up uh, in London, and my parents played records all the time, and and uh, I have three older siblings who were all into music, listening to music. Um, at at some point, I, I I think I was about five or six, and. You know, we would have air bands on Saturday morning in the living room. You know, it's, it's 
I'm serious. Like all four of us would be there with an instrument, a broomstick. You no, know? I laugh because I, I had the same thing. <laughs> yeah. And you do that. And we'd have friends come over and we'd all switch around the instrument. It was just yeah. like we were a band, but it was an air band. And then that just led, led to uh, getting a guitar and drums and so on. Of course. I, my brother got a guitar first and then I got a set of drums and and then it was jamming in the basement for hours on end, you know, for a few years. And then that led to to playing out live and doing open stages, mostly folk shows and that type of thing and and uh, being part of a, a roster of two, three, five, six people, you know, artists and and, mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, it just sort of bled into being more professional and being organized and creating set lists and, you know, doing all that, getting your, your, you know, so-called brand together with photos and, and posters and whatnot. So drums were the first instrument you picked up? Yeah, actually. Yeah. It was, uh, my mother bought me a guitar, gifted me a guitar at Christmas time. I think I was about 12 and I, it was the saddest day of my life, and and she could, <laughs> she could see that my brother had a guitar, and she thought it would be good if we became like the Everly Brothers, right? Oh, really? So you but, were sad because you didn't want to give up the drums? I didn't want a guitar. I wanted a drum set. So, ah, okay. So, so we went to Long and McQuaid, and we traded it in. Actually, I think it was Balones at the time, Balones in London, Ontario, and we traded in the guitar. It was electric guitar. We traded in the electric guitar for a set of, or not a set of drums, but a snare and a cymbal. Okay. <laughs> so I had a snare and a cymbal to, to play for a year, and then the next uh, Christmas I got a set of the rest of the drums. I got the rest of the drums, and so I had my set, and then I, I played for about five years solid, and um, I had a I had a band in high school in grade 10, uh, and we, we practiced a lot, but we didn't play out. I think we played one high school noon hour show somewhere. <laughs> I can't even remember it. <laughs> you know, it's one okay. of those. Uh, and then, you know, life went on. I, I ended up, uh, after high school, I, I um, formed a trio, a vocal, an acoustic vocal folk trio. We weren't very good. And we, uh, you know, we played in, in venues in London, like the Fire Hall and um, a change of pace and the Odd mm -hmm. Hall and different, you know, sort of venues where there would there would be these these folk uh, folk concerts and and most of them were you know fairly local you know and it was just you know joining the fun kind of thing um, and then I had another trio in London that was uh, much better and um, you know we did things like the cable show and we played uh, a number of the venues there as well but we didn't get out of London. And that lasted about a year, and then that fell apart. And then I moved out west, and that's when things really kind of took off for me. I joined a trio almost immediately as soon as I got out there, a singer-songwriter from Sweden and another player from Edmonton and I joined up, and we played a whole bunch of shows that year. The Swede went back to Sweden, and that was the end of that. And uh, and then I, I bought an electric guitar and got into rock and roll and punk and, you know, and then after that, I uh, I joined with uh, Cargo Records um, out of Montreal and became their sales and marketing rep for British Columbia, and that that led me to being in the business side of it. Yeah, you were in the business for quite on the business side of the business for quite some time. Yeah, about fifteen years in total. Was it different? In those days, well, yeah. I mean, when I first started in the business, what I what I did to get in the business was I I founded a nonprofit organization called Pacific Songwriters Association, which uh, as a songwriters association as a songwriters association was the first one in Canada, and within about three months, we had three hundred and fifty members, and I produced. 77 seminars over seven years we had one a month 10 months of the year wow took, took the summers off and uh 
every two months we put out a, a newsletter, which became practically a magazine that was 24 pages every month, every two months. And um, it was just about educating musicians and songwriters about the business because there really wasn't much. I mean, there was SoCan and there was ProCan and um, they had, you know, they had the odd seminar, but it was really few and far between how you would learn about the business itself. Um, there was a recording school that I, I joined up and went to and, um, the Institute of Communication Arts, they're called something else now, digital arts or something. Um, and I'm still in touch with a number of those people that I went to school with and, and the people who ran the, the school. Um, so yeah, that was in 1983. I started the song, the songwriters association and did, did that for seven years. I, um, I became, when I left school, I was a head engineer for a, a duplication firm and worked uh-huh. with all of the independent artists in, in Vancouver from Bumstead, Katie Lang, um, 5440, Gangland uh, Network. I mean, everybody. I, I worked with everybody in getting their demos done on cassette. That was the way we did it in the, in the 80s. And... Um, I left them and I went to a, a small label, Imperial, or sorry, um, Invasion Records, and uh, was their marketing person for a year. Went to Los Angeles, went to New York to kind of tout, tout our wares. And uh, after that year I left, I was kind of disillusioned with the the sort of management of the label and what the goals were. Uh, I wanted to go independent, and and it, you know they were they were waiting out for the the big deal, you know, to be signed by a major. We had several of them on the table, but the negotiations kept falling apart because we kept going back asking for too too much. Okay. And so I was like, "What are we doing? We're spinning our wheels. I got to get out of here." So I left, and I started my own company called Bang On Productions, which. Um, Primarily was a, a, pub, a publicist. Uh, 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 I was a publicist for basically five, six years. When okay. I started that, I I landed a contract with um, at that time Canada's lar- largest booking agency, Feldman, and so that was a one year contract that kind of launched that whole project for me. And uh, within a few months, I took on the Cargo Records um, contract as well, which was uh, basically selling punk rock records all over British Columbia. Um, Punk rock and and alternative music, which at the time really wasn't coined uh, as a genre. Um, It was just considered to be not major label, (laughs) you know. So Uh um, I did that for from... 1990 to 1998 when the company went bankrupt um i left vancouver in 96 to go to toronto and montreal to work with the management team at cargo to uh, at that time just bolster the company uh when i arrived in toronto the president of the company who was a fairly new owner um took me aside and said, we're losing $100,000 a, a month. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and, we ha- and we have been for the last few months. I'm like, what? What? Are you kidding me? That's a lot well, back then. That was a lot. And, you know, we were we were making about, yeah. we were, uh, not making, but we were selling about $23 million worth of uh, wholesale music. Um, wow. And, you know, we repped over 400 labels from around the world, independent labels. We were the largest independent distributor in Canada at the time. So it was a big deal. And I was really excited to, you know, come East and be part of this, this big company and, and uh, everything, as soon as I arrived, everything fell apart. And it was like, what the hell is going on? And so at that point, it was two years of just sheer, trying to bail the company out every which way, trying to figure out how to make it, you know, st- stem it from, from losing money. And that was a huge part of my, you know, life. It's just, uh, um, it was incredibly emotional. And when the company went bankrupt, I mean, I, I pretty much had a, had a, um, 
a breakdown, you know. So it was that mm-hmm. kind of thing. I left the company. Sorry uh, to hear that. I left Montreal when the company went bankrupt. I came to here here to Stratford and, and just had to chill out for a few years because that's how long it took. And I mean, I was just like, it was crazy. And uh, so I ended up um, getting back into playing music. I, I'd stopped actually playing music as a musician for about 10 years and so I picked up the guitar again and that was my resolve from all the emotional turmoil of being part of this sinking ship you know which was at one time the beacon of hope for independence in Canada. yeah <laughs> I get that I get that music is a Peter Pan for quite a lot of people yeah yeah, yeah. so is Stratford your hometown it is now yeah I've been here 21 years Okay, and what made you choose Stratford when you decided to? Actually, twenty-two years. I come to think of it, moved here okay. in January nineteen ninety-nine. It was a fluke, and we had sold our house in Montreal. And I was looking, you know, I was doing all my research, and I at that point I was like, okay, I'm getting out of the business because I can see the writing on the wall with you know the internet coming on board and all this stuff. And that was around Napster too, right? Napster was a couple of years later, I believe, but um, okay, you could just see what was happening, and uh, a lot of the smaller labels went out of business as well. I mean, they were being scooped up. So many independent artists were signed and then just put on the shelf, just so the majors could have control of it, and mm-hmm. it was just, it yeah was awful, you know. So I just thought, wow, if cargo can go out of business then something's wrong somewhere and it was it was just the the business at that end there was something that was just really you could just see it wasn't going to survive and and so i uh, you know I, I poked around and i wasn't getting any bites nobody was doing anything it was just a really tough time in the business i think in in 1995 worldwide globally music sales dropped 20%. And it wasn't just cargo that that affected. It affected so many people. And mm-hmm. um, we did. had a cash flow problem because we had a major hit on our hands, which was the offspring. And um, got to keep them separated, you know. And so, um, the you know, when you're looking at the, 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 the business side of it in that respect, I mean, I think we had terms with the... Vendor, which would be Epitaph Records, we had to pay them within 30 days. But the retail stores didn't have to pay us for for 90 days. That was our deal. <laughs> it was like, oh, oh boy. So when you're selling like a hundred thousand records a month or whatever it was, there's no way that you can keep up because you just don't have the cash. And then the bank was like, no, we can't give you any more money. So it just it the whole thing imploded, and that was the the basic you know tenet of that. So can um, I ask you a question? Yeah, for sure. Could you not have uh, renegotiated the timing of payments? Or not- was there a reason why there was a, a gap there? Yeah, that was a standard, I believe. Um, okay. There was a lot of issues with the, the terms of sale. Okay. Um, terms and conditions of sale. Uh, as I got into it and started to investigate and and learn more about you know how are how are the other companies like the major labels how are the major labels dealing with retail because when you have a 20 percent downturn in sales um, globally that wasn't didn't just affect cargo as i said it affected every single company in the world globally Mm -hmm. and cargo had at that time i think it was 1995 mid-95 we had 40% returns. Well, how the majors dealt with this was in their contracts, they had a 15% to 17 or 19% maximum return uh, approval. But if you returned, you know, 15% of what you purchased in the last year, you had to purchase an equivalent amount of new products. So, it was always flush, you know, you wouldn't be losing money. What all the retail stores did at that time to cargo was we had no, we had no deal like that. So I was trying to rewrite the terms and conditions and all of the major chains were like, you can't change these deals on us. What are you, you know, you can't do that. (laughs) Um, And, 
and so they were they were paying off their bills with returns and it was like we had at that point like cash flow just absolutely stopped because everybody was sending their 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 records back to us you know uh-huh. and so if, you know a certain chain had you know fifty thousand dollars that they were owing to us they would just <laughs> go into all their stores and say send it all back and that's what we got so we were we were stuck it was just a terrible time and it was like how do you manage all this you know yeah so yeah but anyways that was a period of my life i kind of want to forget <laughs> you know? yeah i get that thank you for sharing that it's interesting, interesting. Yeah, really. i'm always interested on the business side of the business uh, it's uh, fascinating. And it's a lot of moving parts, and a lot yes. of people really didn't know the inner workings of why the company went out of business. But it was at the end of the day, it was a cash flow issue, terms with the retailers and the vendors, um, and then of course, you know, you 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 started to be the people started to distrust you because you couldn't meet the obligations, you know. Um, so it was, it was tough. It was tough. I, I mean, I, I got a, I, I got threatening letters from some of the labels, like threatening my life, you know? So it was really, it was a crazy time. Oh, I can see why you moved back to Stratford or settled to Stratford. <laughs> wow. I'm, I'm well, out of this business, man. This is- yeah. Well, let's talk about something positive. Your music. Uh, We're coming up to listen to track one. Um, waiting for my dying day, incredible release. Uh, it was co-written with George Leger the third. Yes, uh, you did quite a few instruments on there: vocals. You did the vocals. You did the electric guitar, piano, harmonica, and you did samples. Yeah, yeah. yeah so uh, it's a great release. Can you tell us a bit about the backstory? Yeah, I mean, I just had this line um, I had come up with one night, and it was, um, you know, have mercy on my soul, whatever it was. Have mercy on my soul. I've got nowhere to go, and I'm waiting for my dying day. It was just everything, all those words just kind of rolled off my tongue. I wrote it down. I had it there for a couple of weeks, and I I, I uh, talked to George about it. I said, um, you know, I've got this line here. What do you think? I think. It could be used for something, you know. And George and I, you know, started to partner in the last six months to write songs for Sync, which is writing music for television and movies and whatever. Okay. Uh, Sync is where you marry the music with the visual uh, for people out there who don't know that term. And it's an interesting side of the business. It one. really is, yeah. So we we kind of tapped into this and we got signed to an agent in Los Angeles. Um, and and so I started watching this uh, television series called Lucifer. I'd 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 seen this um, uh, interview with a, a music supervisor, and uh, it it came up in the conversation. That's not what she was doing, um, but it just came up as uh, yeah, this song and and would be kind of cool and something like Lucifer, you know. And I and I said, what's Lucifer? So I, because I don't really watch a ton of TV, but um, okay. I started watching this this uh, series, and I I kind of fell in love with it. I really loved it, and I thought, okay, if I was to write something for that, what would I write? This line came up, and it kind of fit with the whole theme of of that series, and so I I, I basically I um, recorded just a vocal. Uh, acapella and George took that and he started to work it. He sent it back, and I was like, "No, that's not where I'm going, George." He he was like jazzy. It was all jazzy. I'm like, "Whoa, that's not where I was going with that." Really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so I can't I, imagine that. But. Yeah, it's just a very different version. And and this is the thing about sync is that you can take a song and create four or five six or ten different versions of it so this would be our jazz version okay it makes sense it's more commercial that way yeah exactly so i uh i basically stripped out all the tracks and i just went to town one night and i said i gotta show george what i'm thinking and uh so i started with some drum tracks and um and then and just started layering from there and every everything that that you know, was 
kind of spontaneous, actually. It was all, every instrument was fairly spontaneous. I just had an idea of what I wanted it to sound like and, um, and then just started working every, every instrument and section. And, uh, and I sent it to George and he was like, holy F, you know, this is great. Let's, let's do it. So he ended up mixing it and mastering it. Um, but the whole conceptualized uh, thing was a combination of our, both of our efforts. So, mm-hmm. And we've just, we've just decided that uh, anything we work on together, we're going to share credit, kind of like a McCartney and Lennon deal. And um, so it's, uh, you know, I like, I like that kind of arrangement mm-hmm. in, in this particular situation. Normally I'm like, hey, I wrote 60% of that and I'll give you 40 or whatever, you know. So yeah. um, I think it's, I, I've been reading a lot about different collaborations like the band and and how Robbie Robertson has the full credit for most of the songs. And um, and then I'm, you know, I, I, I heard that uh, the Tragically Hip, that, um, uh, what's his name? The fellow who passed away. I can't remember his name now. Uh, uh, it doesn't come at me either. Oh my gosh! Anyways, the the lead singer of Tragically Hip. I can't. Why I can't remember his name is beyond me. But um, he he would give everybody in the band equal credit, and because they were a band. So I just mm-hmm. I really like that approach now. I never used to be like that, but I'm like, yeah, you know, we're all working on this together. And even though the band creates the arrangement, uh, it's not legally part of the creation of the song. But it adds to the creation of the song. I think it should be recognized as such, you know. So I think that's that's kind of where I go now. Fair enough, I agree with you. So we're going to listen to Waiting for My Dying Day right now. Gonna die on the tracks. I'm gonna hang my head up high. Gonna take this bottle of medicine. Gonna ask the Lord why, oh why. I've been chained to my head for so long. I know I'm drowning in pain, and I've got to escape. This fever dream, this dark cloud of hunger and rain. Well, I'm drenched to the bone, I'm cold and I'm alone. I'm waiting for a judgment day. Have mercy on my soul, I've got nowhere to go. And I'm waiting for my dying day. I haven't had a drink in seven whole days And I'm still feeling down and out Well, I'm drenched to the bone I'm cold and I'm alone And I'm waiting on a judgment day Have mercy on my soul I've got nowhere to go And I'm waiting for my dying day See on my soul, I've got nowhere to go And I'm waiting for my dying day Have mercy on my soul, I've got nowhere to go And I'm waiting for my dying day Have mercy on my soul, I've got nowhere to go And I'm waiting for my dying day 
Plus, an incredible track and an incredible video um, done by Emma Hefke. Yeah. I, I liked her approach on the video. It was excellent. You're walking through a graveyard, dark, black and white, and it's cool. Yeah, I, I just wanted something really raw, and, and, and she actually did the black and white thing. I wasn't expecting it to come out black and white, but I'm glad she did oh, really? it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, had, I had no idea. We were filming in color, so I'm like, well, I guess it's this is what's going to happen. But she, she, you know, she's amazing in that she takes the visuals and she really manipulates them. So that was a little bit of that as well. So yeah, yeah. I I saw that video and the, the next track that we're going to listen to later in the program, uh, Two Stars Collide. Uh, incredible. Um, creative um, uh, illustration Emma's video of, uh, of your music incredible what blew me away um, about the two stars collide video um, it was so unique like it's a like a love song yeah. or a celebration so it's a couple yeah. but there's only one person in the video yeah yeah like I just, I kept going how did she come up with this and it was incredible. It's incredible to see a creative come up with a, a never done idea, a unique idea. It was I was blown away by her talent. Oh, good. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, I approached Emma and I said, I've got this idea of, of having, you know, someone. Actually, I wanted to do it with somebody else and, and, and another song about a few years ago, but we could never get it going. And so I had a chat with them and I said, I've got this, you know, I got to do this video for this new song. And, and I've got this idea, this concept of, of, you know, the, the love interest is, it's just her. It's like the narrator is, is the camera and it's just going to be all these different scenes of her uh, that the narrator is seeing or whatever, or if somebody is eavesdropping on the scene, but it's just, from his perspective or her perspective, whatever. And, um, and she ran with it. You know, we had a, we had a day of shooting. I did a bunch of the camera work and sort of directed certain scenes. And then she took that footage and went away and did a whole bunch of other stuff. And so I just think she brilliantly edited it together, you know, and it's, uh, again, it's another raw video, but I, I like that homegrown raw look, you know, I, I'm not flashy person, so I don't, really want that flashy look either you know it suits your music and your brand yeah i think so too yeah yeah i just want to back up a, a, a bit i thought waiting for my dying day was mastered by coastal master he yes coastal did that song that's right you're right okay i oh, know i just george, wondered george, i had it in my notes and i wasn't sure yeah george mixed it and Bud at coastal mastered it yeah Huh. Did, did a great job. Yeah, yeah, I thought did so. a great job. So, can you tell us about story about two stars collide? Is it a personal story? It is. Yeah, it's about. I figured that about <laughs> a relationship that I had when I was nineteen and nineteen. Yeah, yeah. So going back a number of years, and it was important for me to have somebody young in the video to kind of portray that, you know, young love and. Mm -hmm. and, um, so, you know, Emma, in a way, contemporized it because it's her now today. But it, it, I think the song, you know, stands that that true love story. Uh, not even a true love story, but it was a, it was just one of my first loves, and it was a great period of time. And um, so that's what it was. I mean, there's one line in there about. The, the 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 actual moment that we we met and and the line is um we were dancing on chairs watching baldry sing so we met at a long john a long john baldry concert <laughs> oh wow and you were chair dancing and we were chair dancing oh yeah. my god yeah. that brings you back to university it was chair dancing table dancing thing exactly yeah you yeah. said fun back then I don't yeah. know if they do it now. Uh, I remember David Wilcox came to the University of Guelph, and me and my flatmate, we were up on the chairs and the tables. And uh, can't can't uh, beat those memories, can you? No, no, absolutely not. Uh, no. 
Well, I can immortalize them, though. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you for sharing that. That's awesome. Yeah. Makes this song even more incredible. So we're going to listen to Two Stars Collide. Next. Two cars collide at breakneck speed One rolled over and spilled its seeds Like two locomotives There was nothing left But damaged parts flying in the air One small decision changes everything Like the day you left me in the middle of this thing I couldn't help myself starting out clean I was worrying about the stars and just everything I knew that we were two lovers distant I knew that you were my new romance The sky is dark, save for the stars The fireflies and Venus and Mars Two stars collide, watching Baldry sing We were dancing on chairs in a sweaty ring I took you home and we fell in sync Our hearts were beating to our lover's beat I knew that we were two lovers distant I knew that you I held you in my arms to feel your embrace and your spirit so You know what blew me away, Barry, is the two tracks that you selected for the podcast are so different. Yeah. They're so different, and it really showcases your talent. I, I was blown away. Right. Thank you. Yeah, I, uh, I'm on this kick to collaborate with different people, and different people who come from you know, different approaches to music. And um, okay. at the end of the day, it's it's all art. And I, I, I know that the music business, the industry, 
tries to put artists in a box and say, you have to sound like this. No, you can't release that song because it doesn't sound like this box that you're in, you know. And I'm like, you know, it's all art. And the, the, the collaboration with Nathan, Two Stars Collide, was originally written during the session as a dance song. And, you know, so while I'm going to be hypocritical of what I've just said, <laughs> I said to Nathan, I said, I'm not sure that all of my fans, like, especially when you, when you think of Spotify, Spotify creates playlists with your music in it. So could I go from other songs that I have, like Portland, Maine, and where do you go to a, you know, full on drum and bass dance epic six minute song, you know, and I don't know if the people who are listening to those other songs would be changing the channel at that time, you know, going, what the F is this, you know? So I said, let's take this and let's create three versions. Let's have this dance version, which is you, you release that. I'll do an Americana version with, with electric guitars and, you know, pedal steel and We'll just dress it up a little bit differently. And then we'll do this kind of folk pop version, which will be a combination of both of our skill sets coming together. That mm -hmm. was that release that we did and that Emma did the video for was that combination. I've got an Americana version coming out shortly and Nathan released a dance mix already. So we've got oh, of this, album, we'll have three mixes in total. So it's a... That's incredible. Yeah, to me, it's just like if you if you you get on with people and and you're you're able to create together with not a lot of conflict because sometimes there can be conflict in creation. But um, Nathan and I were just like bam, 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 back and forth and and throwing ideas at each other. We were like two kids in a sandbox having the best time, and it was just. It, it was just a really great process working with Nathan. Uh -huh. Got so many ideas, and um, you know, I was just really grateful to, to 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 do that with him. We've got some new, some more stuff coming out in the future, but uh, yeah, it was. A, it's a, to me, it's a really, it's a really cool collaboration of two genres coming together. You know, well, I look forward to it. You know, honestly, I get why from the marketing standpoint from the business side of it um <clears throat> an artist or a label management choosing a specific genre right um, oh, yeah. from from artistic standpoint it doesn't make sense to me uh when i look at the uh, icons of one in particular that i'll note like david bowie yeah you couldn't put it every release was different yeah, and say uh, you know because he he went with his soul, he went with his art. Yeah, uh, I think that's what music should be. Totally agree. Yeah, the Beatles were the same, and a lot of the songs they put out, mm -hmm. just every song was slightly different. You know. Mm -hmm. But then again, some contemporary artists are crossing over and doing it publicly. I I don't know the rap uh, the rap uh, artists. I wouldn't call him a star, but he's a rap artist, is well known. Um, he did something with Billy Ray Cyrus. You have some uh, other artists that are using Latin or Latino absolutely. artists. Um, and the music they're putting out together is absolutely outstanding. Yeah, yeah. The Billy Ray Cyrus artist, uh, Little Nas X. That's who it was. Old Town Road. Yeah, that was, I mean, that's a great collaboration. I mean, it was a great collaboration. I covered it. I don't, you know, I, I wrote, I write for a New York City firm. I cover music. I covered that. Um, but I couldn't recall the artist, but it was a good collaboration. Yeah. Um, but I guess when David Bowie did it, he did it without apology. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I noticed as hopefully a trend with other artists that they're doing it the same way. Yeah. They're saying, hey, this is what it is. You know, it's not like Katy Perry going from gospel to what she's singing now yeah. and, and sort of saying, well, that's me in the past. Uh, it's like, this is who I am. I'm an artist. This is what I want to do. And this is my creation. You don't like it. Well, you know, yeah. I, I like that approach to music. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. 
So where is the best place to find you on social media? Yeah, I mean, uh, primarily, if you search um, Stringbone, you'll find it everywhere. And um, Yeah, I actually do. <laughs> my, web- my website is uh, stringbone.ca. Yeah, I would suggest people go there because it has your bio, your That's music, it. a link to uh, uh, Red Mary Rant. Uh, you also have a newsletter, Sign Up. Yeah. Uh, so when you have a new release, do you post it through the newsletter? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't I don't um, blast people with, with, you know, updates very often. You might get one month where I send out two, but typically it's uh, every uh, two months or three months. And uh, I'll just put, a, you know, everything that I'm working on in that so you can follow it, you know. I'm sure to sign up. Yeah. I like I like it when artists and bands have that because it's invaluable because you get it into your I get it into my inbox versus okay I'm randomly taking a a brain fart out on social media which is yes. what it is um, and then I, I I follow you so I randomly get that if the algorithm will allow it right well, exactly yeah. um, I prefer to have it by email and then I can shoot you back and say hey I love it. You know, let's talk. Exactly. Yeah, it's great. It was great. And I encourage any fan out there to do the same. Yeah. Let's I, sign up. It's true. I mean, I think the email is a definitely a relevant uh, platform still. And when mm-hmm. I send out e- when I send out my newsletter, I might get 20, 25 responses, you know, from people. And it's a great way to, you know, keep in touch with those people as well. Oh, 100%. I agree with you. I agree with you. The next best thing is not always the best thing. Yeah, no, it's not. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the, the Buzzer podcast and featuring your music. Uh, really love what you do. Thank you so much, Shay. You're thank very you. talented. Very talented. And uh, I'm definitely uh, have you as an artist to watch. I look forward to your future releases. Appreciate that. Thank you so much. Have a good day. All right, you as well. Bye-bye. Well, that's a wrap. Thank you all for tuning in to the Buzzer Podcast. Thank you to the artists on today's show. This show wouldn't happen without your music. Episodes run Mondays and Tuesdays at 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Follow us on Instagram at the Buzzroll Media and on Twitter at the Buzzer Indie. Subscribe fees at thebuzzerpod.com. Buzzroll Media has sponsored this podcast. Music is provided by Kevin Estrella, Pyramids on Mars, On Air Indie, from iPad to yours, over the airways. Have a good one. See you next episode. Cheers. <laughs>